I hope you brought your Bibles this morning, and we're going to take a rather close look at a passage. And so while you're finding Hebrews chapter 12, let me mention uh, four things. First of all, all of this, um, these giving, these uh, opportunities to give over the holidays that Chris mentioned earlier, I hope you'll take advantage of all of them. You may recall that when I got back from Baku, one of the great impressions that Baku made on me is this, um, this tendency in the Christian church to be consumers. We're consumers, ladies and gentlemen. We're not, we're not as good at giving as we are to consuming. So what I'm pleading with you for is to find one of those, two of those, three of those, do them all. But uh, here's the chance for us to um, uh, attack this tendency towards consumption that we all have. Otherwise, uh, second thing is the systematics class. The systematics class that I teach twice a year, the two Saturday mornings, the eight-hour thing. If you're interested in wandering into some fairly deep theological waters, you, uh, the sign-ups are open. It usually fills up. So um, if you're interested in that, uh, call my secretary. Uh, two other things. You know that just around the corner, actually be uh, a week from this coming Wednesday night, on the 29th of um, November, we're going to have a congregational meeting here, at which time you will select five men from a list of 14. It's on the board in front of you. Those are the 14 names. Uh, you will get the opportunity to do one of the things that's um, entrusted to you as a congregant. That is, to elect your leaders. Uh, this is not a list that the session produced. You produced that list. And you will select five men from that list of 14 on the 29th at 6.30. Now, I'm going to make you a deal. Although I shouldn't do this, um, I, I will regret it, I bet. Next year, I probably won't do it. But, gang, um, if you want to come and vote after 6.30 and the congregational meeting has started, um, if you want to vote and then leave, go right ahead. I, I, we, I wish you would stay around as we look at uh, Galatians chapter 5, verse 26. But if you have to go home, go ahead. Um, but we, your vote is, uh, needs to be cast on the, on the 29th. And then finally, gang, we just finished our first semester of Marriage Matters. It's this 12-week course that we offer concerning marriage. Uh, whether the marriage is happy or hurting and everything in between, it's, it's all for you. It's 12 weeks, free childcare. It costs, I think, $50 for the couple, which is all materials. Folks, um, I've probably talked to three or four folk, people who were involved with this first semester, and they were raving. I talked to a young woman who, um, when I made the announcement last, whenever I made it, um, she got on her phone and uh, signed up for the course on her phone. Shame on her. Um, but go ahead. <laughs> Get out your phone and go ahead and register. It'll fill up. Uh, I think it's a maximum of 75 uh, couples. Maybe that's wrong. Maybe it's 50 couples. I, but anyway, it, it's got a limit. So um, be a part of it, guys. It's, um, it's a discipleship course concerning the subject of marriage. And it's, it's the best thing. We didn't originate it. It originated with a church out in Dallas. But um, we found some great usefulness and great good in it. So, hope you'll be a part. You need to sign up right away. Go to graceofman.org slash marriage matters, and um, you can register there. Now, let me read you our text. As most of you know, we're studying the book of um, Hebrews, and we're, in, we're almost done. We should be, Lord willing, done um, by, the end, uh, by the middle of December. 
So we're at the last portion of chapter 12. Let me read you, um, beginning of verse 18, we'll go to the end of the chapter. Uh, <laughs> listen up, guys. This one is a doozy. For you have not come to what may be touched a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and the, to innumerable angels in festal gatherings and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the promise, to the sprinkled blood which speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns us from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth. But now, he has promised yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. The grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our God contained here, this endures forever. So you want to study the Bible, do you? Me too. Until it comes to a passage like this. This is a real whale of a passage. And I am, um, my theory is that I'm going to, Spend 35 minutes of your time trying to explain it to you, and you're going to leave here more confused than when I started. So what I'm going to do as I begin, um, as we head into the text, I want to give you just four quick observations that might help you as we try to explain the text. Here's the first one, guys. You need to, you need to see, I think you do, but that how much of the, so much of this passage is so countercultural. Gang, all of Christianity is countercultural, but this is emphatically so. If you want an example, look no further than the statement in verse 29, our God is a consuming fire. Guys, if our culture even believed in God, which they don't, they, it wouldn't be this God. They wouldn't believe in this God. This is, this is not what they're after. That's the first thing. Here's the second thing, gang. At the center of this rather cryptic passage is an appeal. It's in verse 25. If you'll take a look at the text, the appeal is, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. There is someone who is speaking. 
and you've got to listen to him. And it's not me. And we'll figure out who it is in, in a minute. But gang, that's the center, that's the heart of the passage. It's an appeal. You, you must listen to the voice of him who is speaking. Third, folks, um, the author's intent, the, the, the writer's intent here is just like the intent that he has had in the entire rest of the book. And that is this. He's writing to a group of converted Jews. The book is called Hebrews because he's writing to Hebrews, converted Jews, probably living in Rome, who because of persecution, because it has been so hard, because things got tough, they decide they are contemplating, well, you know, I don't want any more of this. I'm tired of being a minority. I'm tired of being a persecuted minority, so I might as well just go back to Judaism. And so to dissuade them from such a move, he gives them two pieces of information or observations. Call them reminders. He gives them one before his appeal in verse 25, and then he gives them a real spine tingler uh, after his appeal in verse 25, uh, starting at verse 26 and going to the end. But his intention is to instruct them, to give them reasons, to give them arguments. Don't don't give up. Don't let this culture overcome you. And he's going to give them two reasons, one before the appeal, one after the appeal, and we'll look at them. And then fourthly, gang, all of us um, listen to somebody. All of us have voices of authority inside our heads that we listen to. Who do you listen to? Because the primary appeal of this text, guys, is for you. Do not refuse to listen to this voice. Again, it's not mine. But you listen to somebody. The question is who? And that's what this text will do. It'll begin to elucidate who it is that we listen to. Now, with no further chit-chat, let's let's dive into the text itself. Gang, um, in verses 18 through 24, he gives us a metaphor. You know what a metaphor is? It's a it's a, he's trying to compare something. And to do that, he uses two mountains, Mount uh, Sinai and Mount Zion. He's comparing these two mountains and using them to represent Judaism and Christianity. He is using them to, to compare law and grace. And he uses um, Old Testament imagery imagery that all of his readers would have understood and recognized immediately. And so he is contrasting two mountains, one that is law, the other that is grace. One is Sinai, one is Zion. And and notice his language. Did you you pick up on any of this language um, that he uses? First of all, he starts in verse 18. You have not come to, and then he begins to describe it. Blazing fire, darkness and gloom, a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet causing people to say, oh, I can't stand anymore. 
So the point he is making is, if you want to deal with God, if you want to relate to God via law, via law works, you're going to go to that mountain that's going to consume you. What you're going to get there is consumed. Um, If that's the way you want to relate to God, that mountain's going to end up consuming you. Law. Is that how you want to approach God? Because if you do, this is what you can expect. But let me say this. Have you ever heard those those tremblings, those those, um, those felt the lightning of Sinai in your soul before? I hope you have. Because the purpose of that is that it would drive you to the other mountain. Notice in the text, you have not come to, then in verse 22, you have come to. You don't go to that mountain. You come to this mountain. And again, all of his language is is Old Testament imagery, but he talks about to the city of the living God and the heavenly Jerusalem and all these angels (coughs) that are dressed up in festal gatherings and to the the assembly of the firstborn and, and all this language that describes a different mountain. It it includes angels, and our culture loves angels. This, um, the, 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 the point or the picture is one so much more acceptable to the culture of today, although they still think it's a tad weird. But if you want to see the real weirdness, look at verse 24, because in there, there is a comparison of all things of two bloods. Look at it. And to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. You see it? There's the blood of Abel, which cried out for vengeance. But then there's sprinkled blood. And notice what it says. That sprinkled blood speaks. Speaking blood. It has a voice. And notice it says, not that it spoke but that it speaks, that it's speaking. It's still speaking, ladies and gentlemen. So all of that little metaphor is to compare. In fact, the author is replacing, he's overturning Judaism and putting Christianity in its place, and he is saying, there you go, two mountains. So the question now becomes, to which mountain have you gone? Or maybe I should say... um, Which mountain are you on now? Are you on that one that um, where you plead your own merit and uh, and talk about all of your accomplishments, and you say things like this? Well, I'm really a good person, and I've really done my best. You know, every time I hear something like that, I I want to say, really, you really believe that you've done your best? No, you haven't. None of us have. And if you continue to go to that mountain, you're going to be consumed. But he says to its audience, you didn't go to that mountain. You've come to the other one, um, Mount Zion. 
And as a partaker of grace, this is the mountain on which, not the one with all the terrifying, all that trumpet stuff, no, 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 the other one. So he's simply contrasting two mountains. And he's reminding them of the differences between law and grace in his effort to dissuade them from ever going back. You're not on that mountain. Why would you dream of ever going back to that? And then comes his appeal. His appeal is, see to it that you do not refuse to listen to the voice. And his next piece of instruction is a real spine tingler, ladies and gentlemen. Look at it with me. Look at verse 26. He says, at that time, his voice... Now, first of all, at that time, which time? What is he talking about? The time at Sinai. At that time, at Sinai, his voice shook the earth. Read on. But now, he has promised, yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. You know, guys, this is a tad unnerving. Do you see what it says? It says, oh yeah, there was a shaking at Sinai. But there's another one that's coming. And it's not only going to shake earth, it's going to shake heaven and earth. Um, uh, do you see all of this stuff that is associated with earth is going to be removed? Look, this phrase yet once more indicates the removal of the things that are shaken. You know, one of, the, one of the maxims of our culture is, for example, cash is king. You know, that's going to be gone. All of that's going to be shaken. And it's going to be replaced. All the career business, all the, everything. It's going to be removed. And it's going to be replaced with a new heaven and a new earth. Notice, that is the object of a promise. You see it? But now he has promised. Do you enjoy the promises of God? We all do. Here's another one. He has promised that there is coming a day when all of this It's going to be shaken and replaced, removed. You ever heard of that promise? <clears throat> well, that's a promise too, like all the others. That's a promise he's made. Do you believe that one? Oh, I believe John 3.16, Jimmy. And I believe Romans 8.28, Jimmy. And I believe 1 Corinthians 10.13, Jimmy. But do you believe this one? 
You see, the author is using and is reminding them of this promise to tell them, do not go back to Judaism. You can't throw in the towel. Do you understand that there is a day coming when there's another shaking that's going to take place? Do you, do you get that? Because the point that the author is, he's using this reminder to fuel the fire of professing believers who live in a culture that's about to swamp them. I'm tired of being a minority. I'm tired of a culture that laughs at all that I hold dear. Can I remind you of a promise? A promise that there is a day coming where there's going to be another shaking. Because ladies and gentlemen, that promise, it'll change which mountain you go to, and it will also change everything else. It'll change how you live. Let me try to illustrate that as best I know how. I I don't know that this is fully adequate in terms of illustration, but I thought of it myself so that I should get some credit. Do you remember Passover, Exodus 12? Remember, Israel was still in bondage in Egypt, and so God wants to get him out of there, and so he performs these nine miracles in front of Pharaoh and, you know, all those plagues. But then the tenth one, on the tenth one, it was the night of Passover, And if you didn't have blood on the doorpost of your house, you're going to lose your firstborn child. Remember that one? That's called Passover, Exodus 12. Well, let's imagine for a moment that you're a firstborn. You're living in a Jewish home. You're about six years old. You're the firstborn child living in a Jewish home in Egypt on the day of Passover. And you have listened all day as and overhearing conversations between your parents and their friends and their neighbors and community leaders about something that God is going to do that night. There's going to be a shaking tonight. You've overheard all of that. So your parents put you to bed about 8 o'clock that night, and you're lying in that bed trying to sleep, and you uh, can't go to sleep. You call out to your daddy. You say, hey, daddy, um, daddy, have you, uh, have you put blood on the doorpost? He said, oh, no, I haven't done that yet, son. I'll get to it later. And so you lie there for another hour. And only three hours away from midnight. You cried again, Daddy, uh, uh, Daddy, did you, did you put that blood on the doorpost? Oh, son, go on back to bed. You know, I told your mother to do it. Now, at that point, ladies and gentlemen, what are you feeling? A little indifferent, are you? Blase fair? Huh? You are if you don't believe that the shaking is coming. But if you believe that the shaking is coming, then there is in you this holy anxiety. Daddy! Daddy! Daddy, you got to get that blood on the doorpost! 
Daddy, daddy, put down that, that your, stop smoking your pipe, daddy. Go put that blow on the doorpost because we've got to do all that God has said because, daddy, you surely understand. Daddy, don't you understand that the shaking is coming? Do you see, ladies and gentlemen? That's the point that this author in Hebrews is trying to make. You can't dream of going, you can't be serious about going back to to Judaism. Don't you know that there's a promise of another shaking? Oh, there was one time when he shook all of Sinai. Oh, yeah. But now, he has promised another shaking where everything's going to be replaced with a new heaven and a new earth. You believe that? Your culture doesn't. It's hard to believe things like that that are so utterly despised by our culture. And so we begin to think, well, heck, I can't beat them. Why don't I just join them? You can't do that. Do not refuse to listen to the voice that is speaking. Not mine. Because he's compared the two mountains. You don't want to go to that one. It'll consume you. And if you do, do you not remember that there is a shaking, another shaking that's coming? Guys, as he closes the passage, here's what he does. He says, people who believe that, he says, therefore, verse 28, people who believe in that, there's some things that they do. And he mentions one of them. He says, um, with gratitude for having received a kingdom that cannot be shaken. You see, first and foremost, we're receivers. You understand that. We don't do things to gain admission to the kingdom. No, no, no. He's brought us, he swept us into the kingdom, and now we offer something in return. We don't give him and then we get from him. He gives to us and then we give him. And the one specific that he mentions in the text, you see it? Worship. Worship. And then look closely. It's not just any old worship. It's worship with reverence and awe. How do you create reverence and awe? I certainly can't do it. But once you've seen your sin and made made your way from that other mountain to to the mountain of the gospel, you see your sin and you see a bit of God's hatred of sin... And so you approach him in worship with reverence and awe. And I'm telling you, ladies and gentlemen, that is completely lost on our culture. Reverence and awe of what? Of football players? Gang, does your individual worship, does, your, does our corporate worship as a church, does it reflect 
reverence and awe. Do you sing like that? Do you pray like that? But gang, as countercultural as that is, that's peanuts compared to his next statement. Because our God is a consuming fire. <laughs> you got what kind of primitive nonsense is this? You don't believe that, do you, Jimmy? We've moved beyond that in the modern West. No, we haven't. Oh, but Jimmy, that's just describing people who are outside of Christ. Well, that's true. But ladies and gentlemen, God is a consuming fire, period. The God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament is the same God. The God of Moses and the God of Paul are the same God. The God of the New Testament is not one molecule less severe than the God of the Old Testament. And that's supposed to affect how we worship. Does it? Let me hasten to add this, and I'll quit. When I stand before God, I don't have to fear that fire. Because you see, my sin has all been already burned up. You know, there's an illustration that people have overused, and I have overused it. I probably have done it three or four, but I'll make it quick. It's, you know, how do people who live on the plains prepare for a prairie fire? They see a prairie fire off in the, the horizon, and how do, you, how do you get ready for it to approach you? Well, you go out in the front yard, and you scorch everything in the front yard. You just burn it all up. And then when the fire gets there, it comes to this spot, and it just divides and goes right around you because there's nothing left in there to burn. Ladies and gentlemen, all of my sin has been burned up already. There's nothing left to burn. Because God has poured out his wrath on his son in my place. Gang, let me summarize what this guy's done. He's dealing with an audience that is combating a culture that thinks that we're a bunch of idiots. That we have committed intellectual suicide. That was in the Washington Post. That Christians have, they're easily led. They're pretty dumb and they've committed intellectual suicide. And so it's, it's just hard to hang in there when the world is touting all kinds of different values. And so he writes to his audience and he says, you can't quit. You can't give up. You have not come to the mountain of law. You came to Mount Zion where there's sprinkled blood that speaks. And what exactly is that sprinkling blood saying? Well, it's saying this. Back then I shook the earth. But there is a day coming when I'm going to shake heaven and earth. And all of this is going to be removed and replaced with the new heavens and the new earth. So, this pastor looks at his, his congregation and says, uh, 
this pastor, looks at this audience, and he says, guys, you did not come to a mountain of law. You've come to Mount Zion where there's sprinkled blood and it speaks. Not spoke, it speaks. You know, we sing a song, it says, um, and drops of grief can ne'er repay the debt of love I owe. No, it can't, but drops of blood can pay the debt that I owe. And so, we've not come to that mount, we've come to this other one. And, and, and don't fail to hear what that voice is saying. What is it saying, Jimmy? It's saying he's promised. He is going to return. And he's going to take everything wrong. And he's going to make it right. So, hang in there, my brother and sister. Father, I do pray that you'll use this text in the same intended way that the original author used it for your people here. 2,000 years later, would you remind your people that we live in a culture that would love to chew up Christianity and spit it out? Would you remind us all that we are on a we're on a different mountain than they are. and certainly can't expect them to understand and the things that we hold so dear. But also, God, would you remind us of the promise, this promise. Among all the great, wonderful promises, here's another one for us to, to enjoy and to refuse to listen to that promise could doom us. So would you remind your people that um, the final chapter has not been written and it awaits another shaking. Until then, we commit ourselves as living sacrifices, which is our reasonable service of worship. We do that, of course, in Jesus' name. Amen.